Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be starting a new book. I've covered this book in the past, but it's my favorite book to read. Um, one of my other favorite books to read is uh, as it, as it is translated correctly. And it's been a long couple years long time since I've read that book on this program so I'll probably probably cover that one next but this one is called Mysteries of Creation I just didn't feel like reading all of the appendix of the last book I'm sure it's interesting but I've felt like it's time to recover or to redo this book and it's full of so much interesting and deep knowledge that I just felt like it was time to redo this book. So, uh, before I begin, I just finished another tour of duty hauling crude oil in the oil fields. And... I spent today sleeping. So it's 12.39 a.m. in the morning on July 14th, 2023, which is nice because my family's asleep and there's not a lot of noise. I don't know if you know this or not, but I have five kids and a wife and a dog and about 10 cats and 40 chickens and 16 goats. <laughs> and they're all asleep right now, except for maybe the cats. But they're outside cats. So I probably won't have much interruption other than maybe my 17-year-old boy who likes to play video games when I'm awake. <laughs> anyway, let's get into this book. Um, it's called Mysteries of Creation. It is a book written by Ogden Kraut back in the 1980s, and it covers a lot of really good topics of early restoration theology. And um, I really appreciate all that Ogden compiled, even though I don't agree with everything that he believed, um, but he compiled quotes from the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from Joseph Smith's time all the way up, well, to maybe Heber J. Grant, I don't know. It's mostly or early Mormonism, which has significantly changed throughout the years. Um, most people who don't read anything but the correlated 
stuff from the church wouldn't know about the changes. And the reason why I do this is because I like to delve into what the early leaders of the church believed and wrote about. I don't necessarily accept all of their conclusions. And I think that a lot of them did begin to understand some things that might not be talked about anymore in the church these days. But I'll be giving my commentary based upon the revelations that I've received personally, uh, the visions, the dreams, and the experiences that I have personally been given about different topics. So the reading of this book will be the full reading of the text, along with my commentary. And uh, anybody who doesn't want to hear my commentary, that's fine. I also post the text to each podcast on a separate platform so that they can read this without my commentary. Um, I think just considering these things and taking it to God and asking and asking for truth and confirmation of the Spirit is important for the individual growth of each of God's children. And I really enjoy reading and contemplating and thinking about these things. So, so this is The Mysteries of Creation, Chapter 1 pages 1 through 11, and this was uh, published in December of 1989. I will show thee the workmanship of mine hands, but not all, for my works are without end, and also my words, for they never cease. Moses chapter 1 verse 4. One of the greatest queries of the mind of the saints is to understand the nature, the principles of the foundation of our existence. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 275. Every world that has been created has been created upon the same principle. They may vary in their varieties, yet the eternity is one. It is one eternal round. These are things that scarcely belong to the best of this congregation. There are items of doctrine and principles in the bosom of eternity that the best of the Latter-day Saints are unworthy to receive. If the visions of their minds were open to look into the vast creations and gaze upon the power and glory and goodness and exaltation of the gods, they would exclaim, Woe is me, I am undone, I am of unclean lips. End quote. The Teachings of the President Brigham Young, Volume 3, page 353 and 354. Page 3, Preface. Learning the mysteries of creation involves a never-ending search into the unknown. But as as man learns precept upon precept, 
He will grow in wisdom and understanding with a greater respect for his creator and all of creation. The prophet Joseph Smith recognized the power of of the creator. Quote, He that can mark the power of omnipotence inscribed upon the heavens can also see God's own handwriting in the sacred volume. And he who reads it oftenest will like it best. But he who is acquainted with it will know the hand wherever he can see it. And when once discovered, it will only it will not only receive an acknowledgement, but an obedience to all its heavenly precepts. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith page fifty six. It is written that the things of God can only be understood by the Spirit of God. But regrettably, most of mankind have acquired only the spirit of the world. So heavenly things are often misunderstood. To increase the difficulty in obtaining a clear concept of God's work and the mission of Christ, there seems to be conflicting statements throughout the scriptures. Many views and interpretations have been attributed to the creator of the heavens and the earth. Misunderstanding the scriptures led mankind into the Dark Ages, from which we have never apparently recovered. For in this dispensation the Lord said, Darkness covereth the earth, and gross darkness the minds of the people. Doctrine and Covenants, section 112, verse 23. Without the additional benefit of revelation, the scriptures are confusing and misunderstood, and incorrect interpretations usually result. Nevertheless, mankind looks for, with awe into the great vault of the universe and wonders at the creation of the Creator. Page 4 The wonder of how it was created why it was created and who created it does not escape the mind of mortal man. Astronomers, cosmologists, scientists, and most of mankind have speculated on this subject ever since the beginning of time. Only a very few have ever gained the remotest understanding of the creation, and they were God's prophets. And yet... Even when they have gleaned only a meager understanding of the mysteries of the universe, and from their words unfortunately came many conflicting statements concerning the creation. There are numerous and obvious doctrinal differences between the LDS religion and other world religions. But pertaining to the subject of creation, there are many disagreements just among the Mormons. This book will attempt to identify and clarify some of these problems and contradictions, such as who created the heavens and the earth, the Father or Jesus? Or did they do it together? Were many immortals involved involved in the creation? Who was the God of the Old Testament, the Father or the Son? How long did it take to create the earth? Who is the only begotten? 
can spirits create anything physical? What was the fall? What is the destiny of man? As Brigham Young stated, these are things that are scarcely that scarcely belong to the best of this congregation, and also it is a mystery to the wisest there is upon the earth. But Joseph Smith said, he who reads it oftenest will like it best. This subject is somewhat like a great jigsaw puzzle, which must be fitted together one small piece at a time before the whole picture can be seen. And apparently some of the most important pieces are missing. So this brief effort does not attempt to answer all of these questions completely, but merely to provide further knowledge and insight into forming a better understanding of the Earth's creation. Each chapter of this book is a stepping stone or another piece of the puzzle, and hopefully by the last chapter, a more clear picture will be visible and there will be a few less mysteries of creation. So we're going to start chapter one on page seven. Chapter 1, Introduction Winston Churchill once described a confusing problem as a mystery shrouded by an enigma wrapped around a question. This definition could also apply to many factors connected with the creation of the earth. In this vast program of gods, we mortals can only see through a glass darkly. So... We're gonna not. We're probably not gonna understand it completely. At least that's what I'm taking from this. But I believe that God can show us many different aspects to understanding different different aspects of the creation and the pre-existence. I know He has for me. That's why I give commentary on these things because I know that God has given me a lot to share with the people. And for those who think that, you know, these things are too sacred to share, I used to also believe that until 2013 when God came to me and he said, kneel before me and ask me who you are. And I've talked about that on the program in the past, but one thing he told me to do after he showed me who I am is to be a bold witness and to teach the truth. He has shown me many of these things in dreams and visions, uh, being taken up in the spirit. I've, I've been shown a lot of things which fill in some of the gaps that maybe were not talked about by early leaders of, <clears throat> of the church or of any dispensation. And so I will be sharing different commentary with uh, with the writing of this book as we uh, peruse through the different chapters. Anyway, continuing on, many of the mysteries in this realm must remain as mysteries for now. Only comparatively few sermons, scriptures, and scientific facts have shed much light on the subject of creation. But this is no reason for us to avoid learning what we can learn about it. 
in some instances, the scientists come closer to the truth than most modern Christian ministers. Some of these mysteries can be better understood by reason, logic, and common sense than by literal statements from ancient Bible writers. Brigham Young, in speaking about the creation, mentioned how little we really know. Quote, The capacity of mankind in attaining to geometrical knowledge and the fine arts is great. All nations and people understand more or less of the knowledge pertaining to the arts and sciences. But when they leave those principles that are comprehended in the studies pursued by the natural man and undertake to define their own persons, their own being, and to understand the propriety and wisdom of the creation and bring forth to themselves or to others those principles that pertain to future knowledge, they are in the dark. There is a veil over them. Page 8. The veil of the covering that is over the nations of the earth has beclouded their understandings so that they are in thick darkness. This, our experience, teaches us that when any uninspired person or persons who pretend to step beyond organized nature, which is visible to the natural eyes, there is a mystery, the hidden mystery, the deep unsearchable mysteries of creation. And quote, Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, Page 284. Brigham said that unfortunately the Latter-day Saints have a little more light and knowledge about the mysteries of creation. Quote, the Latter-day Saints have some knowledge respecting their future lives and destiny. The Lord has revealed this knowledge. We know the designs of our Father in heaven in creating the earth and peopling it and bringing forth the myriad of organizations which dwell upon it. Journal of Discourses, Volume 14, page 229. He also said that comprehending these mysteries is one of the grand expectations of good men. Quote, I expect, if I am faithful with yourselves, that I shall see the time with yourselves that we shall know how to prepare to organize an earth like this. Know how to people it, know how to people that earth, how to redeem it, how to sanctify it, and how to glorify it with those who live upon it, who hearken to our counsels. Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 274 through 275. Many volumes have been written just on the areas of creation and astronomy that are known, but only a portion of those principles and facts are necessary for man to understand pertaining to his salvation. The human body, as studied by medical science, has encompassed thousands of years and thousands of men. Page 9. Their, de- their in-depth studies have involved all of the intricate phases of the body's construction, its reaction to chemicals, and how it can be repaired. 
Their conclusions have filled thousands of books, yet none of these professions have written much, if anything, on the eternal destiny of the body. So too with the scientific work of the astronomers. In years of research and labors of many lifetimes, their studies have produced few comments or words of wisdom concerning the purpose or destiny of this earth. Astronomy is the study of heavenly bodies, and anatomy the study of the human bodies. But scientists and doctors in neither area have revealed much on the eternal destiny of these heavenly or human bodies. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young often expounded important truths connected with the creation that were not found in the Bible. This is typical of inspired prophets. Moses and Abraham also saw and knew more about the creation than they recorded. Apparently, we cannot understand these things unless we see them in like manner. However, Brigham Young tries to give us just a glimpse. Now I wish to ask you if you have any conception or idea as to the creator of the world. Oh yes, you, re- you reply, a great many of us have a tolerable idea of it. But still there are mysteries which we do not understand, which are in some things, um, there are some things in the Bible about the creation that seem to be dark. We have learned some things in this kingdom we do not understand, and that do not correspond with the reading of the Bible. Let me open the eyes of your understanding. There has never been a time when the, when the creation of worlds commenced. There are from eternity to eternity in their, in their creations and redemption. After they are organized, they experience the good and the evil, the light and the dark, the bitter and the sweet, as you and I do. Page 10. There never was a time when there were were not worlds in existence as this world is, and they have passed through similar changes in abiding their creation preparatory to exaltation. Worlds have always been in progress and eternally will be. Teachings of the Prophet, Brigham Young, Volume 3, page 393, by Fred Collier, or compiled by Fred Collier. Creation is more than just making a world. I, actually, I have to say something about this, a little bit of commentary. So, and I've talked about this in the past, but for new listeners, it might be beneficial for me to share these experiences with you. When I was young, and I was taught by the public school system, we were taught the fact, they called it a theory, but they taught it as fact, the Big Bang Theory. Which, interestingly enough, this new telescope that they've put into space, this satellite telescope, has seen farther into the vast creation of God's universe than would allow for the Big Bang to happen. Like, they've basically disproved the Big Bang by the new technology of this new satellite telescope that they have, uh, the James something telescope, I can't remember what it's called, 
but it's just beautiful. Like they took one one portion of a deep field um, image, and there are literally billions of galaxies further out in space than than if the Big Bang happened as, as long ago as they they believe it did. Like there's no way that the creation of these organizations with their the vastness of of the planetarians uh star structures would be able to form it and they're so far out in space and i have no idea how in the world they know any of this i think they're working with theories not facts but but they have basically it's called the james webb telescope i think anyway they basically disproved the big bang theory but back in the in the I guess the early 80s when I was in elementary school and into the 90s we were taught the Big Bang fact and they called it a theory like I said but it was never taught as a theory and I would I would contemplate these things even as a child and a teenager and even a young adult and I knew for certain that there was a God because I have been taken up in the spirit by him. I have met with him face to face in the flesh and I absolutely know without any shadow of the doubt that we have a father in heaven and that we have a redeemer and savior and I have seen him face to face and I know that that sounds crazy, but those are my lived experiences. And um, I guess I want to defend myself a little bit. Um, I know it sounds crazy to say some of the things that I say. However, somebody who is crazy does not hold a job driving a semi-truck for 28 years with no accidents and no tickets, no write-ups. Um, I, I take my job very seriously. Um, I take my family life very seriously. Um, these experiences that I have had, if I was schizophrenic, they wouldn't be limited to certain time periods. Um, just reading into the the medical journals and the uh, trying to understand, I I love to learn. I don't know if you know that about me. I I love to learn. I love lectures. I love reading. Um, I love learning, and you know it's come to my attention many times that I'm crazy for all the things that I talk about and that I believe and that there's no way that I that these experiences that I've had could ever be happened or ever happen to anybody like it's just whatever but people who have had visions and see things they are mentally sick for the proportion of their life without medication and I am not on medication the things that I have seen have been 
interestingly enough, at specific times in my life, early on, but my major experiences in 1995 with being caught up in the Spirit, seeing Jesus Christ, and being taken into the presence of God the Father, that happened in 1995. In 2003, I was caught up in the flesh to Mount Vashel, which is not on this earth. It's where the city of Enoch is, in the city of Salem. I was taken to a, at the, the base of a mountain. I felt the wind in my hair. I washed off in a creek. I could smell the sagebrush and the grass and the dust. And I was told to hike a mountain. I sweat. I could feel the sweat running and the, the breeze of the wind in my sweat. It was a physical experience. And I know the difference because I have been taken out of my body and shown many things. And I love those experiences because I, in my flesh, am in constant pain. I have always had pain in my body. Um, I'm in pain right now. I have uh, had MRIs that have shown arthritis from the base of my skull all the way down through my spine, uh, in my hands and arms, and I'm in, I'm in pain a lot. So <laughs> even though I work four 14-hour days or sometimes five, um, and I'm able to do that through just perseverance, just focusing on my job, I'm still in a lot of pain. And it takes me one or two days to recover from work every week, which I'm in recovery right now. I get four, I get four days off. I work, uh, I work four on, four off. Sometimes I work five on and get three off. Like last week, I worked five on and got three off. But when I'm taken in, in the spirit, I love it because I don't feel the pain of my body anymore. It is so very free and so very light and just, I think, exhilarating. But this particular instance in 2003 when I was taken up in the flesh, I could feel the density of my body. I could feel the breeze of the wind in the place that I was at. I could feel the sun upon my back as I walked up this mountain. I could smell the sagebrush and the grasses and the dust in the air. And not a lot of dust, but I, all of that physical stuff I felt. When I washed off in the creek, after God told me to wash off, I felt the cold, refreshing water in my hands and upon my face and my hair as I splashed it upon my face and my hair. That experience that I have, that I had in 2003 is unique and unlike any other experience that I have ever had. And I, and I was uh, instructed to climb this mountain where I did see the Father and the Son face to face and embrace them in the flesh. If I was crazy, I would have had many more experiences like that. 
Now, I have had many experiences and visions where I've been taken out of the body, but they, over the space of time, I can count them on two hands. I have had many experiences where I have had dreams, and those are more numerous than the, the actual being taken up in the spirit type of things. You know, and um, I've been given many revelations as well, although I have not received any since I think 2017, um, because we have entered into the time of darkness, where the silence for 30 minutes in the heavens is taking place in the heavens right now. But um, a lot of dreamers and people who have had visions for the most part they have stopped having those because we are now in the time of darkness since January of 2017 but my whole point in talking about all of this is yeah I have very unique experiences but I'm not crazy maybe I'm deceived according to some of you I am that I'm not crazy. And when I was asking God where he was before the Big Bang happened, I I was trying to stretch my mind around the concepts with the available evidence that I had. And I was just like, God, were you in the void of nothingness? And then you spoke it into creation, which... Some Christians believe, and you know, I, in my studies, I study many different religions as well. Um, I used to be Baptist. Um, I've attended Catholic masses. I've studied the Catholic Church and the Reformation and the Restoration. Um, I've studied other religions. I studied with Tibetan Buddhists back in the spring and summer of 1996 and I loved my experiences with those Tibetan Buddhists like they taught me a lot about being mindful in meditation and and they had really great food and I just loved being with those guys they're so they were happy to me <laughs> anyway but um so I go to God with these questions and you know what? God answers me from time to time, especially if I bug him about things. And I bugged him about this big bang theory and where he was before creation. And I was taken up in the spirit, which I will never forget. And I actually miss having those experiences. I miss him so much, but I really, I'm thankful for this experience that God gave me where he took me up in the spirit and he stood next to me and I was taught many things and I saw it, we were in the spirit in, uni- in the universe and I saw a vision of the past and I saw this great nebulous cloud of light and energy in the vastness of space And we came down into this cloud of light and I saw that the cloud was actually many specks of energy, orbs of energy or light within this cloud. And 
kind of like it reminds me of like if if I were to go up into the clouds and I could see the molecular droplets of water floating there that that create this cloud that we can see that's what it was like and God said look and I looked and I saw a flash of light and what I was looking at was this orb in space and it was the intelligence what is called the intelligence and I saw this flash of light and I saw this orb of light separate into two orbs of light and God told me that this is the intelligence and when the intelligence becomes self-aware the feminine energies and the masculine energies separate and they come from each other and they are self-aware and this is the birth of the spirit but the intelligence from which they come is eternal but the spirit has a beginning one male spirit and one female spirit I was also told in this great divine vision or spiritual experience that the laws of the universe are unchangeable and eternal that energy is eternal the elements are eternal and that there is no beginning of them and there will be no end of them but that the spirit the spirit has a beginning and it can have an end so when we talk about this quote of Brigham Young I don't believe he had the same experience that I had in fact I don't believe Brigham Young had any experience at all other than knowing the prophet Joseph Smith I do not accept Brigham Young as a prophet of God I do not accept him as being the Lord's anointed and I've talked about why in the past and if you want to know just keep listening to these programs I'll probably talk about it in the future but I don't want to go too far off into the tangent I believe that the church was rejected in Nauvoo in 1843 and I talked about that in the past but I've I'll skip over that at this point. I know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. I believed for a long time that Brigham Young was, and I do not believe that he was the Lord's anointed anymore. But I do believe he learned a lot of things from Joseph Smith, and I believe these statements where he says, Never was there a time when there was no creation. Never was there a time when there were not spirits. The vision that I was shown was a vision of the great past. I saw the spirit, the intelligence of God, the eternal father, when he first and she, because it's a male and a female splitting from the intelligence, when God, the eternal first became self-aware 
that's what our Father showed me. That's what our Father Michael showed me. So when Brigham Young says things like this and the knowledge that I have been given, it tells me that Brigham Young did not fully comprehend what he was talking about. And there's many places in Scripture where I can say that I don't believe Brigham Young understood it completely. And I think that Joseph Smith understood it to a point, but God has given it to me to understand it in its fullness. And I know that sounds... I don't know, conceited or prideful. But I just think, like for a long time I thought, why in the world, God, would you show me these things? Why is it that I've embraced you in the flesh and I've embraced Jesus Christ in the flesh, but the prophet, Joseph Smith, did not have these experiences? And he told me it's because of who you are and who you were before you came here. And so... And I think back at the things that Nephi saw in vision, that he was prohibited from revealing things because it was meant for John to reveal those things. I think to myself, well, Joseph Smith saw things, but God held it back for me to explain them. And I fully 100% believe that. And I, that's why... I have seen the things that I have seen. I I want you to notice something else about me, which I don't know if people notice this or not. I'm not trying to gain control or power over you. In 2013, God revealed to me who I am fully, why I was chosen, and he told me to be bold with my witness and teach the people, which is what I want to do. I don't want to be a a cult leader. I don't want to be somebody who's controlling anybody. I believe that each of us have our own path to take to go to God. And I want to share with you what God has shown me, but I want you to take the path. Not because you're following me, but because you want to follow God. I just think of the dream that Nephi had where he eventually came to the tree of life, but before that happened, he left the path, and who did he follow? He followed a religious leader. He followed a religious leader. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about the people who become terrestrial, celestial, terrestrial, telestial. Well, I find it interesting that the terrestrial people are they who are some of one and some of another, some of Paul, some of Silas. But I find it interesting that some of them are some of, of Jesus. These followers of Jesus are are you know, sometimes terrestrial people. And I believe it's because they know about Jesus 
and they know the history, they know the teachings, they might even know the culture of the time. They may very, be very well versed in the study of, of the Messiah, but they never take it to God to know the truth. They study it, they learn about it, but they never take it to God to know the truth. So they are stuck in a lower level of resurrection because they placed their their trust in the flesh. And Jesus, when he taught on the earth, was in the flesh. But not only that, when we place our trust in the flesh of our own minds or the flesh of our pastors, prophets, apostles, or leaders, our gurus, and we place our trust solely in them and we do not take anything to God to get a confirmation of the Spirit that we may know the truth and be built upon the rock of revelation, we have received a curse that comes along with trusting in the flesh. Even though we believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, even though we know many things about him, do we know it by revelation? Do we know it by a confirmation of the Spirit that, yes, these things are true? Do we understand the interpretation of Scripture as God sees it, not as some man or ourselves see it? We need to have a personal relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We can all be prophets, but it doesn't mean we are the Lord's anointed. And God would that you are all prophets. But even though some of you be prophets, there will be different levels of knowledge that you will attain unto according to your obedience and your diligence in seeking the mysteries of creation or the mysteries of heaven or the mysteries of God. Because of who I was in the pre-existence, God has shown me many things. And Satan told me through the whisperings of his spirit that these things are too sacred to share. And I kept my mouth shut for a very long time about a lot of these things. I did reveal it to some people. But in 2013, God told me to be bold with my witness and teach the people, and so I do. Because his words and his rules and his laws are more important to me than man's laws and man's rules. That I will share it as I've been instructed to in this format. But you need to go to God yourselves to understand these things for yourself. And not be like Brigham Young, who learned it from Joseph Smith, but did not understand him fully. And you know, there is a maturation which where we, we take these things in and we ponder these things. And you know what, sometimes we come to 
wrong conclusions about different points of the doctrine or different points of the mystery. And God will correct us over time. We need to be pliable in his hands. Sometimes we need to go back and say, oh, I thought it was a different way, but I'm going to take it to God and I'm going to learn the truth. Anyway, we'll continue with the reading. I know I go off on these tangents, but I hope that for those of you who have heard this before, you'll be patient with me because I know that there's lots of people who are new to this program. And I'm trying to reach all of the people in a way where I can help them to wake up, to ponder over these things, to become prophets themselves. Now, it's true, like I said, you may not become the Lord's anointed. You most definitely will not become the Lord's anointed. Because there's one left on the earth who is the Lord's anointed, and he will he will stay the Lord's anointed until he delivers his keys up to Adam and Adam gives them to his son, Jesus Christ. I am the last. Continuing on with this, creation is more than just making a world. Besides forming oceans, mountains, rain, and atmosphere, it is the placing of a, of a huge sun to give light and warmth. It is a garden, creation to be filled with plants and animals, especially designed as a place for man to live. It is an earth on which man is to have dominion, to grow and learn and have increase in his posterity. But if the great architectural masterpiece was made expressly for man, why did God subject him to so much cold, hunger, sickness, and pain? Why must man be forced to endure so much trouble, poverty, war, and death in its most horrible forms? Then, as if that is not enough, why did he create a devil? with billions of imps to add to the misery of man. It has been revealed that this little world stuck out in space is more than a scientific miracle. Even though it be is plagued with sorrow and adversity, it is all for the good and everlasting welfare of mankind. When man finally learns the reasons for all these creations and conditions, he will rejoice and exclaim that it is truly a marvelous work and a wonder. This little globe resting among the stars has a surprising and predetermined future. It exceeds man's meager understanding in this world. For God's special work is to bring about the, immortal, uh, the immortality and eternal life of men. And I would add, not only is it to bring about the immortality and eternal life of men, but it is to 
organize an organized space and to create worlds without number. Looking at the images of the James Webb telescope that we were talking about earlier, God's creation, God the Eternal's creation, is beautiful and vast. Continuing on with the reading, and we're almost done. Only much later will man learn that his destiny is centered in God, and the destiny of God is centered in him. Page 11. Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof, and all the children of men which are and which were created, of the same he greatly marveled and wondered. Moses chapter 1, verse 8. When we come back for the next reading, we'll start on page 12, which is chapter 2, and the title of that chapter is called The Wonders of the Universe. So I don't usually open up phone lines, but I'm going to open up. I'm going to open up phone lines. Uh, I'm going to do a live program. And this will be a podcast for those of you who listen to, are listening to it later. And you know, the program is going to be at 2 a.m. in the morning. Which uh, will be on the 14th. It, it's just like... You know, I have under an hour, and I'm going to try something new, so I'm going to open up the phone lines. If you are listening to the program, we are, uh, the phone number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. If you are an international caller, you can use uh, a program like Skype to call in. The country code for the United States of America is 11. And the number that I gave you is actually a Manhattan number in New York. Um, 917-889-8827. That's actually a Manhattan number, which is where the studio or the uh, I'm not exactly sure why they gave me that number actually I was assigned that number when I started my program I usually do podcasts I can do live radio programs um, but obviously this is a recording I'll upload this uh, to go into a live program so anyway uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening and um I hope that I don't disappoint anybody by not reading the appendix. I it just there was a lot of stuff and I was reading through it and I was like, this is all very interesting stuff that I want to get to a point in the reading and talk about the points that are being made more than I want to talk about just whatever random stuff is in an appendix. And this appendix is almost as big as the book. Uh, of the doctrine, the teachings of the doctrine of eternal lives, but it wasn't organized in any way that I could tell. And like I said, like I really enjoyed reading it, you know, but I just didn't feel like it would be a program worth doing. 
And I've been feeling for quite a while that I need to read Mysteries of Creation. And I have felt for quite a while that I would like to read as it is translated correctly. Because when I first started podcasting back in January of 2014, like, I didn't... I tried so many different ways. This was like... I didn't have the money for these big expensive mics and all of these things. And, like, technology has gotten a lot better as far as, like, these days. I can record this on my iPhone with my other device to to play the music in the background. And I can read it off my tablet. And I don't have to have this big old studio, you know. And the audio quality is way better. I have a better format for doing these things. I post the te- the text on a website so you can read along. Like the things that I'm doing now, as opposed to the things I was doing back in 2014 to 2016 with my old program called The Kingdom of God or Nothing, or from 2016 until today with uh, with Fundamentally Mormon and Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Like... Even in the beginning of this particular program, Fundamentally Mormon, uh, the the quality of the podcast wasn't as good. And now I think that they're a lot better. I think I could do better. I just don't... I don't have a studio. And even if I did, I, I enjoy sitting on the couch and just relaxing and reading along. Uh, that's part of the reason I don't do a whole lot of YouTube um, videos cuz i just i just like sitting here on my couch and reading and talking about these things and i would really like it if i had people call in and and ask questions and discuss their thoughts and theories and that's why i'm going to open it up for phone lines right now so like i said the guest call in number is 917-889-8827 and if we don't have any callers that's fine but if we do have some callers, that would be great, too. And, and at this time of day, most of the people who are going to be calling in, if they do call in, are going to be international callers because I have a huge following of people overseas. So if you are overseas uh, and you know how to to make international phone calls on the Internet, well, now is your time to do it. So. All right, well, if if we don't have any phone calls, then uh, then thanks for listening anyway. All right, let's uh, open up the phone lines. And as expected, we don't have any callers. Um, there's nobody in the chat room. There is a chat room, by the way. When I do the live radio programs, if you go to the link that I've posted uh, on Facebook and different groups and pages, and you click on that, um, you can find the guest call-in information. Uh, You can listen to the program online. Um, You can also find a chat room to ask questions and make comments, um, which you know, doesn't get utilized a whole lot these days because uh, I do podcasts mostly. But um, I just, uh, I felt like 
opening this one up to a live program. It's now 2.59 a.m. on July 14th, 2023. So, you know, it's not it's not the time of day when most people would be awake. But I was thinking, you know, there are people who wake up or who stay up late. And I thought maybe they might call in. Um, but... Oh, it is pretty late. So I I enjoy being awake at night. I think it's peaceful. Um, I drive I drive a semi truck at night, and I actually started driving a semi truck in 1994 on Larson's Farms in Hamer, Idaho. They had hundreds of thousands of acres of potatoes that they grew, and I drove a truck for them. Uh, for a couple of months, and then I went to diesel mechanic school uh, through the uh, United, was it W or UAW, and uh, I actually was in school from October of 1994 until uh, March of 1996. I got my CDL in August, I think, of 1995. And then I was a diesel mechanic uh, in 1996 and started driving a truck, hauling produce up and down the Wasatch Front, uh, actually all the way up into Cache Valley, which is the Logan, Utah area, all the way down to Santa Quinn, which is uh, south of Provo on I-15. And I enjoyed that job. For a while, and then um, I served a mission from, uh, let me think here, I think I went into the MTC in May of 1997, and then I left for my mission in June of 97, and then I was in the mission field uh, until March of 1998, and uh, I was sick my entire mission, uh, which upset me because I told God before I met the missionaries for the LDS Church that I, if he would show me the truth and he would heal me, I would serve him for the rest of my life. Uh, this was after a suicide attempt in the late fall of 1996. And after my roommate found me and uh, they saved my life, the paramedics in the uh, the hospital, uh, after I was released from the hospital, um, I wrote God a letter and I told him, if you'll heal me and show me the truth, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And it wasn't long after that that I met the missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I'm a little bit unique. I actually was baptized into the church in March of 1986. Uh, my grandparents, who helped raise me a lot, were converts to the church. My grandmother was a convert in, in the 
early 40s when she, I think she was 17 years old. So she was born in 1923, but her and her family converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when she was 17. And then uh, she was a nurse for the Navy in World War II. And my grandfather had lost both of his legs saving his platoon. And he got all shot up. And uh, he was transported by a medical ship back to the United States to a place called Angel Island. And that's where my grandmother worked as a nurse for the Navy. And she took care of him. And they had a relationship in the hospital. My grandfather learned to walk on his wooden legs. And when he did so, the the Marines had him go all over the West Coast on, on a train to tell the story that uh, he lived through or he saved his platoon. And um, after the war was over with, he made his way back to San Francisco uh, where Angel Island is in San Francisco Bay. And he found my grandmother and he told her that he wanted to marry her. And he would give her time to think about it and that he would be at a specific uh, hotel and that in the morning, if he, if she would agree to marry him, uh, that she could meet him at this hotel and they caught a train and went up to Sacramento and got married in Sacramento. I think in whenever the war was over with, I don't remember the marriage date. Uh, they went back to Chicago, and I don't know all that happened, but she did get pregnant with my aunt, and um, he was kind of a rough guy. He was raised in the slums of Chicago. Uh, he was in the Jewish slums when he was young, before the war, when he was 13, there was a gang leader who used to mess with him a lot and the gang used to mess with him a lot and he called the gang leader out as a 13 year old and beat the ever-living tar out of him and uh, I think he was tough because my great-grandfather was a drunk and he used to beat him and my great-grandmother a lot and the reason why my grandpa decided to go and become a marine is because he wanted to learn how to kill he wanted to kill my great-grandfather. And fortunately, before the war ended, my great-grandfather died. And he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. But he married my grandmother, and she was a uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she was a very good influence on him. Although he was... Um, you know, pretty hard on the alcohol and uh, smoking. But there was a time in his life when he was about 35 years old in the 1950s, and uh, he had an experience, and he converted. He knew God existed because when he had his legs blown off and he got all shot up, he died. And he said that he went 
to a place and there was a man there and the man told him to go back that his life was not over with. So he had uh, a lot of family issues which caused him to be an alcoholic but he knew that God existed and with the influence of my grandmother he eventually converted and or had a conversion experience and became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now because he was 100% disabled and because my grandmother also received a pension from being in the Navy, um, they had the money where they didn't really have to work. Uh, so my grandfather had and my grandmother had many business ventures throughout the years in different places, um, but they decided to go on a mission. And throughout their life, they actually went on seven missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, when he was older, when my grandparents were older, that's when I was in their care because my oh, my mom, being a missionary's child in the LDS Church, they had received a special dispensation to bring their family with them. Um, she was pretty rebellious, and I think she was pretty rebellious throughout her whole life. And um, she ended up marrying my dad, and they had a, a miscarriage when she was 19 years old. And then I don't know what happened to my dad because he was also LDS, and I'm not really sure about the story of that side of my family very much because he became a hardcore drug addict and my mom finally left him when I was three years old. Uh, my grandparents uh, started raising me on and off when I was two years old and it was nice for my grandfather uh, because he always wanted boys and he had three daughters. So he also, um, because I was alone, uh, made arrangements with his second daughter, my aunt, uh, to to have Casey, my cousin, uh, live with us in the summertime and sometimes even in the wintertime. Um, and Casey was a little bit older than me, but he was like a brother to me and my grandparents raised us a lot together. Now, we did go to the LDS church when I was growing up, uh, but in Sacrament, a lot of the time I would, fall, I would fall asleep. And I remember going to Sunday school a little bit here and there, but not really a whole lot. And um, my grandfather, because he had pains in his... Uh, this is going to sound weird, but so when you have an amputee, they can still feel pain in their feet and their legs. And he would sometimes be in so much pain that uh, he had to put morphine patches on his on his stumps right below the knee. And then there was a couple times when the ambulance had to come get him. Now, we lived 65 miles north of Idaho Falls. <clears throat> uh north of Idaho Falls on I-15 in the little town called Spencer, Idaho. It's about 30 people in that town. 
in the summertime. In the wintertime, it would get down to 10 or 11. Uh, the whole county actually only had 850 people in it, and the largest town, which is where the school was, where I went to school, only had 450 people in it. And, uh, you know, if you want to look up on the Internet, uh, look up Spencer, Idaho, and look up Du Bois, Idaho, and look up Clark County. It's still very, very uh, sparse in the population. Um, but anyway, so we would uh, we'd go to church, and then after church, Grandma and Grandpa would just uh, leave. They wouldn't stay. They did sometimes, though. But So my mom... Uh, she went to church a couple of times. Uh, there was like sparse uh, periods of time when she would go to the LDS church. Um, I even was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was even um, given the Aaronic uh, the priesthood when I was 12 years old. So I think I was baptized when I was nine. And, I, well, March of 86, I guess I would, well, let me think. I guess I was eight. Uh, I was almost nine when I was baptized. Anyway, so I, I received the priesthood when I was 12, and I'd go to church every once in a while, and I kind of felt like my mom was just doing it because she could get food from the bishop's storehouse. Um, I don't have a relationship with my mother anymore at all because uh, of things I'm not going to talk about on this program. There were some really bad things that she did to me when I was growing up. Uh, and then she allowed my stepfather to uh, abuse me a lot. And uh, it was a bad situation growing up. Anyway, so um, but my mom would try to get sympathy points, and she would talk about me. Because um, I was very angry at the abuse that she had allowed me to go through. And from the time I was six years old until 12, that was the time of the abuse of my stepfather. And she didn't go to church hardly at all during that time. Um, I was very angry with her for allowing him to beat me the way he beat me all the time. I was terrified growing up um, because of this man, this military man. His father was, I think he was a drill instructor, and his father abused him, and he was the oldest, and I was the oldest, so he abused me a lot growing up, like physically, uh, mentally. Um, there was also some sexual abuse that did not come from him. Um, it was just I had a really bad childhood. Anyway, so but I was very angry uh, from 12 to 16. Um, and uh, my mother used to get sympathy points by talking about me in church, about how horrible I was. And when I lived with her, it was always chaotic. Uh, but when I lived with my grandparents, it was... Great. I I miss I miss missed them so much when I wasn't with them. And they were older, so it was hard for them to raise me. But anyway, so um because my mom would treat me the way she treated me and because she would try to get sympathy points from me, 
Uh, a lot of people in the ward treated me very badly. And um, I don't think it was just her fault, though, uh, because ever since I was a young child, um, people have hated me without a cause. People, even in my adulthood, they hate me. Uh, not everybody, but there are certain people, and I, I believe they're weak-minded individuals, people who Satan can whisper into their ear. And I even like had a guy uh, in Emory County that lived behind us when we lived in Orangeville, and he hated me. He was our next-door neighbor. And he liked me at first, um, but then he started hating me, and he was trying to get me to fight him all the time. And I'm like, I'm not going to fight you. And he'd always try to get me to come on to his, his property to fight him. And I was just like, yeah, I go on your property. We have a fist fight. I get arrested because I'm on your property. You know, it's dumb. Anyway, I saw him at the Huntington Maverick gas station, Huntington, Utah, one time. And it was early in the morning, and I knew there were cameras there, so he couldn't start something and say, say something when there's evidence. And I went up to him and I said, why do you hate me so much? And I'll never forget. He says, I hate, I hate the way you look. I hate your face and I hate your guts. And he wanted, he wanted to like go out into the parking lot and like have a fist fight. I'm like, why do you hate me? So I don't understand what your problem is. You don't like even really know me very well, but you hate my guts to the point where you want to hurt me. And, like, he's, like, red in the face, frothing at the mouth, basically. And, like, I'm just, like, confused. Because I've had people like that my entire life. Uh, the first time I went to kindergarten, my teacher hated me. She used to throw my work away all the time and yell at me and to the point where it got so abusive that uh, my mother took me out of school, out of kindergarten after three months. And we moved. And then I went to kindergarten in a different place. And I like, I like kindergarten. It was great. But um, I liked school. But there were, there were a lot of bullies growing up. Now I'm a Gen Xer, so uh, I think there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of fights after school and before school that I don't think that you see as much anymore these days. Now I could be wrong, but... Anyway, but, like, these people hated me. And, like, when I was in Deacon's Quorum and Teacher's Quorum, the other students, like, or students, whatever they're called, they hated me. Whenever they would see me ride my bicycle around the neighborhood uh, in Clearfield, Utah, they would chuck rocks at me and try to fight me. And then they would, like, they were, like, my priesthood leaders, like the president of the Deacons or the Teacher's Quorum. So uh, with that and with just different experiences, I grew to hate the Mormon church. And um, I became a Baptist. Now, I had a friend when I was younger who was Baptist. He used to take me to church. His family used to take me to church all the time. And I... uh, was taught by them how Joseph Smith was a false prophet and how the the angel Moroni was really Satan come as an angel of light. Um, 
I became a Baptist. I tried to have my records removed from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I think I was 16 at the time. And the bishop, where my records were, he told me, well, you have to wait till you're 18 to have your records removed. <laughs> anyway, so I was very anti-Mormon. I, I w- would read a lot of uh, propaganda against the LDS Church and against Joseph Smith that I received from my Baptist leaders. And I was pretty hardcore Baptist. I took it very seriously up until the point when I became homeless. And uh, because uh, my my aunt and uncle who were taking care of me, they moved out one day when I was at work. And I came home to an empty house or, well, it was a tra- single-wide trailer. Um, I was abandoned. And I called my mom and I'm like, hey, they they just left. And she said her boyfriend at the time didn't like me, even though he had never met me. Uh, and now I, I couldn't go back there. So I ended up being homeless at the age of 16. And uh, I wanted to kill myself. Now, the first time I talked about killing myself was when I was nine years old because of the extreme abuse that I received at the hands specifically of my stepfather, but also of my mother. And um, I don't remember where my grandparents were. I don't know if they were on a mission or if they would move down to Florida sometimes uh, to Winter Haven, Florida uh, in the wintertime because Spencer got so cold and so bad. And sometimes they'd move down to Nevada to this little uh, town called Nielsen, Nevada, which is, the the town's so small, it's just dirt roads. Anyway, so um, it's down near Lake Mead. Anyway, but um, I ended up homeless, and I got into drugs. I wanted to kill myself, and I was just scared to death of going to hell. But it got to the point where it got so bad that I did try to take my life in the fall of 1996. Um, I got really heavily into drugs and alcohol um, before that point because I wanted to die. Um, I was kind of a working alcoholic. I had this job um, working nights. And during the day, uh, I would um, I drink hard alcohol, uh, anything I could get my hands on. Um, I think my go-to drink was dry gin, simply because I could buy more of it for less money. And my goal was to pass out, to escape my suicidal ideations. Um, I used a lot of weed, marijuana. Um, I used cocaine whenever I could get my hands on it, and I would sprinkle it in the weed, and I smoked a lot of crack. And I became an addict. And I tried to kill myself. I still have the scars 
from my elbows to to my uh, fingers where I just butchered myself. Uh, I would have used a gun if um, if my roommate hadn't had have hit it for me, but because he hit it, I used a, uh, a facial razor to shave your beard or whatever. I broke that apart and I used the, the razors um, and a bandage on my upper arms so that all of my veins would pop out. Uh, I drank wine, like a lot of wine, and overdosed on aspirin because um, I did not want my blood to coagulate. I wanted to bleed out. Luckily for me, my roommate brought uh, forgot his lunch, and uh, he came home and he found me passed out and bleeding out. And I don't know how, but they were able to save my life. After that, I wrote God a letter and I told him, if you will, sir, if you will uh, heal me, speaking about my drug addictions and my depression, but mostly my drug and alcohol addictions, and you'll heal me and you will show me the truth, I will serve you for the rest of my life. It was after that that I met the missionaries. I finally listened to them. And when I, when they told me about Joseph Smith and his first vision, I felt a spirit of peace that I had not felt in a very long time. And when they left, I got on my knees and I asked the Father in the name of Jesus Christ if Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And if the Book of Mormon was true. At that point, I'm on my knees, kneeling up against this futon mattress, and I felt this very, I don't know how to, the only way I could describe it is it was like hot oil pouring in at the crown of my head, flowing down through me, to the soles of my feet, not my fingertips. And it was just, it was like hot oil, but it was like love times infinity. It was, it was just an overwhelming cleansing of the Holy Spirit of God flowing through me. And I heard audibly angels singing praises to God, vast amounts of angels. And this was just this overwhelming experience. And I was completely healed from that point of all of my drug, alcohol, and tobacco addictions. Because of my conversion, uh, my roommate kicked me out because he was practicing uh, occult things, uh, goddess worship. Uh, We had an altar in our home black magic like it was just it was nuts so they kicked me out or he kicked me out and I ended up homeless again and that was in December uh, the beginning I think it was like a week into December at that point I was homeless through December into January And then in January sometime, my grandfather 
was laying in his bed in his winter home in Richfield, Utah. And uh, he was just laying there, and uh, he had not put his wooden legs on yet. And he heard an audible voice, and the audible voice told him to find me and send me on a mission. Now, he knew I was, uh, well, as far as he knew, I was a Baptist, and I tried to get my, my name removed from the church. So this was a curious thing for him to be told to find me and send me on a mission. I'm not exactly sure if he knew the extent of the drug addiction and the homelessness that I had gone through in 1996 or in 1994. Well, 1994, I was homeless, but in 1996, it was drug addiction and homelessness. Anyway, so he tells my mom, go find my grandson, and and uh, she knew that I had worked at this place. She went there and was told that I do come around sometimes, but um, they didn't know where I was. And uh, the next time I went into that place, I was told, hey, your mom was here looking for you. She left her phone number and gave her a call. So I gave her a call, and uh, she came and picked me up. My grandparents drove up to Taylorsville, Utah, which is where my mom lived. And my grandfather actually said, I have a proposition for you. I will send you to college, and I will pay for your room and board. And he even uh, suggested putting me up at the uh, the Little America in, in Utah, which is expensive. Like, <laughs> I don't know. My grandfather had a lot of money. But um, he said, I will send you to college and pay for your room and board, or you can go on a mission. Now, he did not know about my conversion experience. I told him about it. I told him, I told God that if he would heal me and show me the truth, I would serve him for the rest of my life, and I did. And I chose to go on a mission. While I was in the mission field, I got very, very sick, uh, had a collapsed lung. Uh, I was sick the entire time. I, I really loved my mission because my grandparents went on seven different missions. They actually had a missionary program that they created, which was very effective. I went to southern Georgia to the, to the Macon, Georgia mission, or the Georgia-Macon mission, as they call it, my first area was Savannah, Georgia, and then I was transferred to another area uh, just north of Macon. Uh, I served in Columbus, Georgia, and I served in Douglas, Georgia in the south, not Douglasville. That's another place in Georgia. And uh, I really loved my mission, but I was so sick. And eventually I had a collapsed lung. I had all these other issues. They sent me home on medical leave. My mom allowed me to stay in a small RV in their driveway, and I could come in to take a shower and go to the bathroom, but I wasn't allowed to go and stay in the house. Um, I had several doctors uh, that were treating me at the time. I got to the point where I was uh, healed enough to go back on the mission, except for one specific doctor, 
would not release me, and I had to I had to receive a release from all four doctors before I would get sent back on the mission. And they were talking about sending me to the south uh, southwest. Uh, at least that's what my grandfather. I, I don't know. He had connections. Anyway, but um, I, I they the one doctor wouldn't release me. I was still sick. My mother wouldn't let me stay there after 30 days, and they kicked me out. I ended up sleeping on a couch at my sister's apartment. And because of that, I was released from my mission, which upset me greatly. Because I told God, and I meant it, that I would serve him for the rest of my life. But I had a CDL to drive a semi-truck over the road, and I did, starting in 1998 with an over-the-road truck driver. And I, from 1998 till 2003, when I came off the road, I just studied everything I could get my hands on. I was making 40-something thousand dollars a year in this job that I had for CFI out of Joplin, Missouri. And I didn't have anywhere to live. So I lived in the truck, and I didn't have bills. And I would spend between two to $400 a month at Desert Buck, Siegel Book and Tape, and the Church Distribution Center. And I did a ton of missionary all over North America. In fact, I was set apart as a stake missionary. And in the blessing, uh, I was set apart for North America. Because I was a truck driver. And I taught so many people. I used to be bold. I'd go into churches. I'd talk to pastors. I didn't care. I was in it. And I was serving God to the best of my ability. And I think that I went on overdrive uh, doing that because I felt so guilty about getting sick and not being able to finish my mission. I mean... I was in the mission field from June of 1997 until March of 1998. I didn't even finish a year. And I had so many trials uh, of just health in that time. And it was hard. You know, uh, my first mission companion overworked me, even though I was sick. He was, his name was Mayan Burton. And his uncle was Theodore Byrne, who was a bishop of the church at the time, the presiding bishop. Man, that guy was from Rexburg, Utah, and he was just a work. He was solid. He was a wrestler, and I was a wrestler in high school for a time, junior high and high school. Um, but he was solid, and he was a farm boy from Rexburg, Idaho, and he was a worker. And... Um, he was a uh, district leader, I think is what they call him. My next area, when I was north of Macon, I was with the zone leaders um, because I was sick. I even walked with a cane. Um, and they had a car, and it, that was nice. And I, I stayed with them, and we did a lot of stuff. Um, just working. And then um, my next companion was Elder Bourne, and he was uh, an interesting guy. He's a very large guy. 
He snorts so loud. Anyway, um, and my last area, because I got so sick in my uh, last area, that, or my second to last area, they put me with a district leader again in a threesome companionship. So the zone leaders, that was a threesome companionship. I was the third wheel, basically. And then uh, Douglas, I was in a threesome, and I, I just got really sick. And then I got in a really bad bicycle accident where I was actually stabbed in the stomach and had it was hard for me to even put pants on because where I got stabbed is where your belt usually goes and it was it was so nasty <laughs> like uh those bike uh handles that have the rubber ones like I didn't have those on my bike or something anyway I got stabbed really bad and I was sick all the time and um they finally sent me home so I was very upset about that, and I just went on overdrive, trying to learn as much as I could about the restoration, about the gospel, everything I could get my hands on, I would read. Um, I would read and study uh, things about other religions. I would read books on on many different religions. I read Christian histories. I read uh histories of other world religions. I was just anything I could do to learn to be the best servant that I could be for God. That was my plan. That was what I did. That's what I tried to do. And uh, that's what I still do to this day, uh, except for I talk about the experiences that I have had about what God has shown me personally, about my personal uh, physical experiences with God and also spiritual experiences with God. And um, that's why I do this. It's basically shaped who I am. My life has shaped who I am up to this point. And I remember I was sitting with Jesus Christ and we were talking and I was asking him questions. And he told me, and it was hard for me to hear this, but and it still is hard to even comprehend it, but he told me all those things that happened to me when I was a child, when I was younger, and he allowed that to happen for his wise purposes. And I might be made into the servant that he needed me to be. I think if I would have had a normal life, I, I don't think I would be where I'm at today. I probably wouldn't have the emotional scarring and damage that I still even feel up to this day. When I think about the things that have happened to me, or I think about the fact that I don't really have a family other than the family that God gave me. You know, Kim was a stranger when I married her. My wife. We are coming up on our 11th anniversary. The first time I talked to her on May 28th of 2012, God told me to call her. I never talked to her before that. I did text her some. We knew each other in a chat room at LDS Singles. I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, and she lived in Lisbon, New Hampshire, up by Franconia, upstate New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, we became friends online. And one day, I'm at this party at this pool party at this resort. And I 
just had this overwhelming prompting that I needed to call Kim. So I got out of the pool and I opened up my flip phone and I called her and I'm like, hey, uh, I'm, I know I've never talked to you before. This is Mark. God wants me to tell you some things. And I just started talking. And it was like God was using my mouth to talk to her. Now, unbeknownst to me, she had um, been crying to God uh, because some things happened in her life, which I'm not going to get into at this point in this program. But she was asking God all these specific, very specific questions, and she was praying for a long time. About two hours after she finished the prayer, I called her, and all of the stuff that came out of my mouth, that God was using my mouth to tell her, was was the answers to the questions that she did not tell me. She told God that I told her because God used me. When I finished the phone call, God told me, take her as your wife. And I told him, she's going to have to tell me that you said that because I'm not going to be the weirdo that says that God told me you're supposed to be my wife. So three days later, she finally calls me back and she says, you're going to think I'm crazy. But God told me to take you, uh, or no, God said to her, to bear me children and ease my burden. I said, God told me to take you as my wife. And then I said, I guess we need to get to know each other better then. And at that point, we started meeting. Um, we started uh, using Skype, which she had Skype and I did not. Um, she had to uh, walk me through putting it on my computer and using it, but we got to know each other a little bit on Skype every day after work. Excuse me, it's uh, 3.41 a.m. in the morning. I should probably try to go to sleep, but anyway. Um, we got to know each other. That was May 28th. This is the first time I ever talked to her. 2012, uh, I made arrangements with my work to take a week off of vacation, and I got a plane ticket from Tampa, Florida to JFK, and then JFK up to Burlingham or Burningham, Vermont, or whatever that's called up there. I always mess it up. That's actually where the state president's offices were. But anyway, um, so I got off the plane and met her and Emmett who was six years old at the time, and Olivia, who was three or four. I think she was four. Yeah, she was four. And uh, that was on June 30th of 2012. Um, Her mom and her sister decided to stay at her house to chaperone. You know, the strangers coming up to meet their daughter, so they're going to be there. So I met them. I met her stepdad. Um, We drove down to a place, Maybrook or Mayberry or something like that, New York. I met her aunt and her grandpa. So interestingly enough, he only had one leg. 
My grandpa lost two of his legs, so but he had a wooden leg too, as her grandpa did. And uh, oh my gosh, that guy's got some stories. He used to run a cement company in Boston, Massachusetts, and he worked for the mob. So I'm not going to talk about him too much, but he's got some stories. <laughs> anyway, but um, and then we drove all day and all night down past New York City on the I-95 corridor. Uh, we went to Washington, D.C., and drove around there and just looked at everything, and it was pretty cool. It was in the middle of the night. And I'd never been to D.C. as a truck driver because you're not allowed to drive your semi-truck in through D.C. So we, like, drove around and saw the White House and saw the Capitol and saw the memorials, and it was it was fun. And then we drove down to uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and I met the rest of our family. And the... Um, that was like five days, I think. And on the sixth day, I was going to get on a Greyhound and go back to Florida. And God told Kim, if you don't go with him, that'll be your answer. And it will not work. You will not get married. And she trusted God. she didn't make the decision that she made, she wouldn't be my wife right now. But she trusted God and she said, okay, I'll go. So instead of getting on a Greyhound bus, we drove from Wilmington. We drove down through Georgia. I showed her some of the places that I used to live uh, as a missionary in Savannah at least. And uh, and we made our way back down to uh, St. Petersburg, her and her two kids. Yesterday was the 11th anniversary of the day that we got our marriage certificate, or our marriage license, July 13th, 2012, and on July 20th. We were married by my bishop in St. Petersburg, Florida. Now, something interesting. I lived in the three-bedroom apartment, I guess you could call it, in, in a really bad area of St. Petersburg. I, it was a mile from the beach. It was in the hood. There was a lot of drugs and prostitutes going on. But, it, you know, it was a mile from the beach. It was 600 bucks a month. I had three bedrooms. And I lived there by myself, and it was kind of cool because I worked these jobs, um, these temp jobs, and mostly I worked for a direction, uh, underground directional drilling company, and they even bought my contract out. That's who I worked for when I met Kim, um, and it was it was a good job. Well, it wasn't a great job, but it was I liked it. Anyway, but um, one of the other things I would do is I was uh, chosen to be part of a work crew to clean out uh, some trailer houses. So Florida has this problem. Old people go there. They get into these 55 and older trailer courts, and then they die, and their whole family's up in Wisconsin or Minnesota or something, and they don't want to come down and get everything, and their parents die or whatever. And so, like, Florida's got a ton of, like, thrift stores, and they're all full to the max. 
and nobody accepts anything. So like all of this furniture that these old people had go to the landfill. And because um, I was such a good worker, um, the manager of the trailer park that we would go to specifically chose me to take over for him because he was in the reserves and he would be gone for a month. So I was chosen to be uh, the, the maintenance supervisor of this trailer park. And because I was the maintenance supervisor and because we did these jobs, I had all this antique furniture in this three-bedroom apartment that we had. I had a nice couch. I had a nice TV. We had, I had antique furniture. And I lived there by myself, and it was nice. And then I felt about three months before that I needed to allow these two roommates who are coming down from Cleveland, Ohio, that my friend, um, you know, I was like, hey, these guys are going to move down here, and they're my friends, and, like, he was my friend ever since the 90s. And um, and I said, okay, well, they can come stay here. So they moved in. You know, I had two bedrooms that were empty. And... And then, like, this this whirlwind of this thing, and I'm going to go get married, and, like, I released the lease to them, and I gave them all of my furniture. I packed up a bag full of clothing. I took my books that I had. Uh, Most of my stuff was in storage up in Washington State at the time, so I didn't have a ton of stuff, but um, packed up my car after me and Kim got married on the 20th of July, 2012, and... We had enough money to get up to Wilmington, North Carolina, and I uh, I got a job with my brother-in-law. He was an arborist, which meant that he cut trees down from the top to the bottom, and uh, we had a bunch of jobs, and we worked through into August, got enough money saved, and we got back up to New Hampshire, where my wife was a teacher who was off for the summer. <laughs> And uh, I married a stranger. She married a stranger. I married a stranger who had two kids. We lived in upstate New Hampshire, and I was a stay-at-home dad. I took care of her kids. I took them to school. I took her to school or to work. School is work for her. I watched the four-year-old. It was so fun. Like, I really enjoyed it, you know. She got pregnant with my daughter, Eliza. She uh, got to the point where she couldn't work, and I went to work. I got a job out of Brockton, Massachusetts as a truck driver. I transferred down to um, Hartford, Connecticut, and I did North New England Northeast region, driving for FedEx Ground. It was a good job. And then eventually um, I got into being an over-the-road team driver for them. And um, one day or whatever, my truck broke down and it needed a major overhaul. And it 
those they were projecting it to be, and I work for a lease operator for Graphetics Ground. So uh, he's like, yeah, this truck's going to be down for like two weeks, and I don't have any where to put you. So, okay, well, Kim and I had, uh, well, Kim got her tax returns back, and uh, we were able to save up some money. And I was like, okay, well, I got two weeks. Why don't we fly out and meet? Like you can meet my my mom, who I was still talking to at the time, and my two sisters and my brother and some of my friends out in Utah. And uh, we prayed about it, and we were told to drive. And God actually told me, I want you to go to these places and rededicate them. Um, and they were like church history sites. So we eventually get back to Utah. And while we were there, everything was great up until the last, until we're getting ready to leave. And Kim got very sick to the point where she couldn't travel. We were scared that she was going to leave the baby. We ended up staying in Roosevelt, Utah, where I used to be an oil field worker, and I had this really good friend lived out there still, but we'd, like, even gone to sea for a couple of days. And uh, he let me stay at their house with my family. I transferred out to a contractor at FedEx Ground in North Salt Lake. We eventually got a place in in Spanish Fork, Utah. And uh, when the baby was out of the hospital and Kim was good enough. Uh, she and another one of our friends who is an older guy, uh, they flew out to Boston, got a U-Haul, or Penske, I think, drove up to upstate New Hampshire, loaded up whatever it was that they could put in there, and drove out to Utah. And I would have gone, but we needed the money, so I had to work. And that's why we're in Utah now. I did not want to live in Utah. Did not want to live in Utah. But here I am. I got a job for the post office delivering mail uh, from the East Bay uh, Distribution Center in Provo, Utah, down to Carbon and Emory Counties. God specifically told me in 2016, uh, 15 or 16, that he wanted me to move to Emory County. And so after a couple of months of trying to find a place, we eventually found a place to rent that was big enough for our family. And uh, that was Orangeville, Utah. And then um, through Providence, God gave us this farm. He made it. Or he made a way for us to to purchase this this property and this home for 185,000. Uh, and then that's when the real estate market went like crazy, and now it's up to like 350,000. I think was what the appraisal was, and the appraiser actually said it would go up to 500 and something. I've got 10 acres of pasture. We've got goats. God told me to stay here until the time comes when it would be too dangerous to remain 
And then he actually specifically showed me where he wants me to, to take people to, to lead people to. Um, I'm not looking forward to that. And uh, being in the time of silence, I'm not exactly sure when any of this is going to play out. Um, the time of silence began, a time of darkness, began in January of 2017, and it goes on for about 21 or 22 years. So I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just here trying to raise my family to love my my family and my kids. You know, we have teenagers, and we have, you know, my youngest is four. And the time that we get with our family and our kids, especially our kids, is so short when you think about how, you know, how long we live. And I want to give them the best life that I can give them. I always wanted to have a family that I could love and that would love me. And I do. I do now. And I want to work hard and I want to do whatever it takes to to provide a nice life for all of us. And I do not want to go camping in the mountains so everything burns down around us when this country falls. And I'm not looking forward to that time. I'm not interested in having a bunch of people around me, even though God has told me to warn people to, to gather. Now is the time of thy regathering, he says, in one of the revelations he's given me. You know, um, I was commanded to start a church called the Church of the Living Messiah in the School of the Prophets. I had a whole bunch of people tell me they were coming, they were going to come here, and I don't, I don't know what happened to that, you know. Lots of people say lots of things and then they change their mind. Um, but God chose me to be his witness. To teach the people to lead the remnant. And even though um I don't have a congregation, even though I don't have a physical church, this is part of the ministry. What I do on these programs is part of the ministry. When God told me to organize the church, he told me the time will come when uh, he will choose the first presidency for the church, it will be me. And that um, it will be called the Church of the Living Messiah in the School of the Prophets. And this part, this part right here, this teaching ministry, that's part of that school. So when I baptized people, I... Uh, given ordinations to people, endowments. But I'm just happy that not a lot of people know who I am because God leads people to this. This isn't about going among a whole bunch of people and 
uh, and gathering them. I'm not a fisher of men. I'm a hunter. And those who are specifically called to be part of the remnant, they're the ones who will come when the time is right. So anyway, uh, that's two hours just about. Uh, We're about to go into overdrive here in 10 seconds. Uh, I would say what the guest calling number is, but the phone lines do close down after two hours. Um, Anybody who would have called in would be able to listen to what's going on in overdrive. And, you know, all this this recording right now on the live radio program, it does go to a podcast, so people can hear the full podcast, even the overdrive, but there's no way for anybody to call in now. So, all right. Well, I think we're going to be done with it for today. And uh, I think I'm going to go, it's 4 a.m. right now, on July 14th. And uh, I think I'm going to uh, take a nap. So thank you so very much for listening to this program and listening to me talk about the things I've talked about tonight. And uh, I'm just glad you're listening. Even if you don't accept me fully, even if you question the experiences that I've had, I think it's still beneficial for your edification to consider the things that we talked about in a doctoral basis on this program. And the things that we'll be talking about as I read the mysteries of creation are so beautiful. I'm just, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to create these programs and, and even this radio show sometimes that I'm able to share with you doctrine of the restoration as it was before it was changed by the modern church. And for those of you who say, I've been a member for 84 years and it has never changed. That's weird because the temple endowments changed several times since the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Did you know the temple endowment used to be an all-day-long ceremony? Did you know that they used to have washings where you got into a bathtub and got washed in the Salt Lake City Temple? And you were anointed by having oil poured on your head? Not just a dab. Like when I went through my endowments in 1997 in the Salt Lake Temple, it was a dab. A dab of water and a dab of oil. And now it's not even that. There's been so many changes since the 1800s, doctrinal changes, ordinance changes, endowment changes, anointing changes. I like to talk about those things. And the reason I know about them is because I I wanted to serve God. I wanted to learn everything I could to be the best servant. And at the time, I was thinking, I'm going to be a missionary for the church. I had a very limited understanding of what God was going to call me to do. And he has called me. And I have seen him face to face and embraced him and the Savior 
in the flesh. And I do have a witness who saw it. He saw it happen. And um, I'm just grateful that uh, that there are those of you who do listen. Um, I do not uh, make any money or ask for any money for this mission, this ministry. Um, no, I'm a truck driver. I have a really good job. It beats me to death. Uh, it takes me two days to recover. I have arthritis from the, the base of my skull to the, the bottom of my back and in my joints and arms, and I'm in a lot of pain. But you know what? I really enjoy my job. I make a lot of money, and I don't need your money. And when I do not spend the time to create these programs, I don't feel the spirit is strong in my life. I was an addict before of physical drugs, and now I'm an addict of God's spirit, and I want his spirit with me, and he has asked me to do this. And when I don't do it, I don't feel his spirit is strong. And because I love him and I want to be obedient to him, I will continue doing these programs. And we're going to talk about my one of my favorite books, Mysteries of Creation. And then we might get into uh, As It Is Translated Correctly, because that's a really good book, too. So, thank you for listening to the program. And... Uh, I'll try to make another one this week. Maybe uh, I'll make one or two. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Take care, everyone. I do actually have to I have to do a bunch of fencing and electrical fencing and stuff. Uh, so I'm going to be busy doing that. And also, we're going fishing. So, uh, you know, I've got some other things to do with my family and chores I've got to get done. But I'm going to try to do another program this week. So all right, well thank you for listening everyone. Take care. God bless. And goodbye. <laughs>